have a hopefully somewhat familiar passage this morning. Sorry. <laughs> How's that? Oh, we're good. We have hopefully a somewhat familiar passage this morning, uh, one that we have perhaps heard many times in Sunday school. And yet there is great beauty and love expressed to us this morning through this passage that we can see from God. And so as we come to this passage, let's give thanks to him as we continue to worship and ask that he would speak through his word. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your great and precious word. Thank you for those who wrote the songs that we sang this morning. As we know, there is a depth to your love, a way that you work with your servants that oftentimes is not the path that we would choose. It is the very best path that you have designed for each one of your people. Lord, as we come to this story, the story of Joseph, we pray, Father, that we would be strengthened in our faith, that we would learn to walk with you through troubles, through trials, through pain, and through suffering, but that we would also find the same joy in your presence as did Joseph. Watch over us this morning. Help us come to your word with open hearts, desiring to know better the God who loves us. Open to us your truth. Speak to us and raise up your servants. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, we can see a lot of things in the character of Joseph. Joseph is a character that I remember back when I was just a wee lad in Sunday school, we had something called a flannel graph. And every Sunday school teacher had all these different characters and things like that. They put up on this flannel graph and, and illustrate for us the story of Joseph. And Joseph was an example of a lot of things, right? Joseph is an example of telling the truth. Joseph is an example of integrity. Joseph is an example of fleeing temptation. But if that is all, then we do not have much hope. Because where do all these things get Joseph? First, he's sold off to the slavers. Second, he ends up serving and bringing to prosperity a disloyal master. Finally, he is falsely accused and thrown into a dungeon. Certainly, you might say that he does eventually get out. I'm not sure many of you would want that deal. Uh, he was 17 when he was sold into slavery. He is 30 by the time he is raised out of the pit. And then it'll be another nine years before he is reunited with his family. Is that a future that you would choose even to rise to the kind of prominence that Joseph did? spending the prime of your life as a slave and then as a prisoner and then finally isolated nine more years from anyone that you knew. And furthermore, if we want to try to take some kind of lesson 
from this for our own lives. Aren't there a lot of Christians who don't, so to speak, get out? Ones who spend their lives in countries that persecute, kill Christians. For these Christians, there has to be more than just tell the truth, have integrity, and flee temptation. Because what is it that will bring these things together and make it make sense? And there are things that are far more central to this passage than just the honesty, the integrity, and the fleeing of temptation. So those are, are of course, important. There are two things that I want to highlight from this passage. And the first one is the Sunday school answer, Jesus. The second is the restoration of community. As we go through this passage today, we see Joseph learn obedience and do all these wonderful things. To be honest, to be faithful with his tasks, to act with integrity through adversity and trial and to flee temptation. But there is something more. There's a beauty, there's an assurance, there's a joy that we can see in Joseph's life that gives the suffering meaning, that lays the foundation for the strength that will sustain him and will also sustain us if we find that same foundation, the foundation upon which Joseph stands. And to see what that is, I want to ask two questions of this passage this morning. First, if God loves me, why am I suffering? If God loves me, why am I suffering? And the second question, very related to that, where is God in my suffering? And we are going to take two weeks going through this part of Joseph's story where he descends from slavery into the prison. Um, but we want to look at these passages through the lens of those two questions. If God loves me, why am I suffering? And where is God in my suffering? And so let's go through our passage this morning. We read the first 10 verses. We're going to go through all of chapter 39. What does our text today have to say about these questions? So after Joseph is sold by the Ishmaelites to Potiphar, he has been brought to Egypt. And we see that the text tells us that in verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. And so in this first paragraph from verses 1 to 6, we have kind of a first scene in this life of Joseph. Being a slave isn't great, but it does think like things are starting to look up for Joseph. The Lord is with him. He is successful in all that he does. And it says here that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Verse 4 tells us that his master notices his success and in short course first makes him his own personal attendant and then the overseer of his house in charge of all that he had. Now, to get the impact of what's going on here, we do have to notice something. The Bible sums all these things up in this first paragraph, these first six verses. Um, but as I said, Joseph was enslaved when he was 17 years old. By the time he's raised out of the dungeon, he is 30. 
And so supposing that about half the time, uh, perhaps more, is spent in Pharaoh's household, uh, this is quite a long time where Joseph is conducting himself in this way. This is at least several years later as Joseph first comes in as a slave where he has abruptly lost his status as the favored son. Sold as a slave, but working diligently and faithfully. And over the course in our text of a few verses, but in his life a number of years, demonstrates his faithful attendance to his tasks, integrity in what he does, honesty and diligence, so that his master raises him up to the point where he, as a young man, is now placed in charge of all that Pharaoh has. But starting with verse 6, the next scene is everything coming crashing down again. In the passage that we read, we see that in verse 7, Potiphar's wife takes an interest in Joseph. And she is not going to take no for an answer. We see that in verse 10, she is after him day after day to compromise that integrity, to betray the confidence of his master, just as she desires to betray the confidence of her husband. And finally, one day, we see in verse 11, when he goes into the house to attend to the work that he is to do, she literally rips the clothes right off his back. When she does this, he flees from her. Now, there's a sense in which this is probably some kind of public humiliation. Joseph has gone running from the house without his garment on. And this is a rejection of her, some kind of public humiliation. And so she turns around and slanders him and claims that it was he that was after her. She tells this lie to the other household servants. And then when her husband, who is the captain of the guard, in fact, uh, Joseph, when he's cast into prison, is not going to go very far because this is the man who is in charge of that prison. He ends up being cast into prison. Now, some commentators note that it's very likely that her husband here does not believe her. Because if he actually believed the accusation that she makes, he likely would have had Joseph executed. But we see here that imbalance of power that we complain often of in our own society. And because of that imbalance, though she is the one at fault, he is the one who loses this position that he has worked years to attain, working his way back into prominence in this household, but now cast back into prison, and all that was accomplished through all those years of faithful devotion and service to this man, Potiphar, in one sense, wasted, gone, just like that. And now he is even lower than just being a slave, because he is a slave in prison. 
probably getting there in his mid-20s, perhaps early 20s, and is now left there to rot. Potiphar has cast him there. Uh, no trial, no formal sentence. He is probably just in there, from his perspective, for life. And I want to focus now on how Joseph responds to the situation that we pick up at the end of the chapter. Uh, so I'll start reading actually from verse 19, where Potiphar's wife has made the accusation against Joseph. As soon as his masters heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. And so let's turn back to those questions we asked. If the Lord loves me, why am I suffering? And the second, where is God in my suffering? And I think what the text is doing here is he is drawing for us a particular contrast. Because we see this repeated cycle going on. And the contrast here is between the world and the Lord. Because the repeated refrain that we see in verse 21 is this, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. And that's something that we have to have sink into our hearts. Because you and I will not always be in a good place. There's no assurance. The prosperity gospel aside, which is a heresy, many Christians all over the world suffer for the sake of Christ. The fact that the Lord is with you is no guarantee that things will go well for you on this earth. Because the Lord is with Joseph. He is with Joseph, and his brother sees him tear his cloak off and cast him into a pit. The Lord is with Joseph. When the Ishmaelites carry him off and sell him to Potiphar's household, the Lord is with Joseph when Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him and has him thrown into prison. The Lord is with Joseph. And the Lord is with each one of you. In fact, the Lord is with each one of you in a way that the Old Testament saints did not enjoy because they did not have that giving of the Holy Spirit that occurred at Pentecost. We have that assurance, we have that promise from God. The Lord is with us. And yet the presence of the Lord does not mean that you will not suffer adversity in this life. Because what the text tells us here is, the, is that God is the one who is showing steadfast, showing covenant love to Joseph. 
a love that will not let me go. But what's the world doing? And do you see that contrast? I mean, we might even start with Joseph's father, Jacob. Jacob does love Joseph. Now, he loves him in a way that's not very good, right? Because he loves Joseph in a way that will stir up the anger of Joseph's brothers because he loves him in an ungodly way, preferring Joseph over the other sons. And because of that, his love, his defective love, is the cause of Joseph's being cast into the pit. Potiphar sees Joseph's character and notices that all that he puts into his hand prospers. He sees Joseph's integrity and hard work and that Joseph serves faithfully. But then when push comes to shove, he throws Joseph into prison when his wife slanders Joseph. In our passage next week, where we're going to continue looking at these questions, we're going to see this pattern continue because this world is not kind to Joseph. The world loves him in a defective way, a way that causes his suffering, a way that is not faithful to him in the way that he demonstrates faithfulness to them, a way that forgets Joseph even when he is a cause of blessing or a means of blessing to them. And so why am I suffering? I'm suffering because I live in a sinful world. Joseph suffers because he lives in a sinful world. Now, let's do a quick thought experiment. What if God wanted to end all suffering, all the suffering that's due to sin? And so God just obliterates all the sin. Well, he could, right? And one day he will. But what does that obliteration of sin involve? The obliteration of sin involves the obliteration of me, a sinner. So that's not a very good solution. And so what is God's solution to the problems of this world, the suffering in this world that is caused by sin? And that's where our second question helps. Where is God? my suffering? Well, the answer is, Lord was with William. Lord was with Eva. Lord was with Bobby and Vicki. Lord is with each one of his people. God's presence with us is completely independent of our earthly circumstances. On the other hand, what's the contrast with the world? The world is not faithful. We see time and time again, God's constancy. You see that refrain, the Lord was with Joseph. And because the Lord is with Joseph, you see the two of them navigating all these downturns in life together. And because the Lord is with Joseph, Joseph is also able to, to continue, but in contrast, what do we see from the world? We see that the world keeps lowering, oppressing, and persecuting Joseph. The world does leave us. The world 
does forsake us. The world does not show steadfast love. One of the grand themes of Genesis that we've traced right from the very beginning is this idea of companionship. That's a very important theme. God was with Adam and Eve in the garden. And when God placed Adam in the garden, you remember what he did? He said, it's not good for man to be alone. Why is it not good for man to be alone? Couldn't he have created a creature that it would be good to be alone? Well, certainly he's created a lot of things that don't mind being alone. A tree on a hill doesn't mind being alone. A rock doesn't mind being alone. Even some animals don't mind being alone. But God created us to have community, to have fellowship with him and with one another. But what is a blessing is also a cause of suffering if what we are created for, we are not able to have. If we don't have what we are created to thrive in, a fish needs water, a bird needs air, bears need food, and we also need all those things, but we have another need. We have that need for companionship. And when Satan rebelled against God, his means of attacking God was to destroy what God had with humanity and something that was an essential part of the character of God, which is fellowship. I don't know how many of you spend time thinking about this, but the doctrine that we have and God's way of being as Trinity is a strange, strange thing, is it not? In fact, you know, in our world, we have a hard time conceiving of what a Trinity can be. And it's one that eludes an explanation that is related to the things of this world because God transcends this world. So there's a way in which he is three persons and yet one God in a way that we cannot understand. But one of the things that that reveals about the nature of God is that God is essentially one who has fellowship. And so God does not need to create this world in order to have fellowship because the Father already has fellowship with the Son, who already has fellowship with the Spirit, who already has fellowship with the Father. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. There is already a community in the Godhead. But what God had in himself, he then expressed to us, and that's part of what it means that we are created in the image of God. What God is, we also have in a way, which is the ability to have fellowship, the desire, the enjoyment of fellowship with one another. And this is the real spiritual warfare, because you can see this is what Satan attacks. By bringing Adam and Eve to sin, the thing that Satan accomplishes is the destruction of fellowship. How can a holy God have a relationship with sinful man? And then we see what happens in terms of the fellowship that sinful man has with one another. Adam and Eve have two children, two sons, Cain and Abel. And because of sin, Cain kills Abel. 
For those of you who are a little bit older, you may remember that almost 50 years ago, Frankie Valley asked us a question. Who loves you? Who's always there to make it right? I don't want to pick on Frankie, but he wasn't always there to make it right. He wasn't there for three wives that he divorced in succession. The world gives what it has according to its nature, which is to say that it does as it pleases. It does it selfishly in terms of what's most convenient or most in its own interest. We see this with the brothers, we see this with the Ishmaelites, we see this with Potiphar. There's no loyalty. And you see that God's covenant faithfulness, God never deserts Joseph. Although the world, although the world deserts Joseph again and again and again. And what we see in this downward spiral from the world's point of view of Joseph's life, where he goes from favored son to slave, to slave in prison. We see that constancy of God. God was with Joseph. Many years later, David would ask a question in Psalm 22. And as David went through trial, much like Joseph went through trial, he asked a question. His question was this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hundreds of years later, God would answer that question. Because when Christ hung on the cross, he repeated that. And there's a lot of dimensions to what Christ says there, but at least one of them is this. One of them is that God was answering that question. When you are in trial, when there's trouble that has come upon you that you cannot escape, and you ask, where is God in my suffering? What we see here with Joseph it's true with David. It's true for each one of us. And we've seen now a greater and a deeper answer to that question. Because when Christ cries that cry from the cross, what he is showing us is that in our trouble, God is always there. And the answer of Christ on the cross is simply this. In my trouble, Christ is with me, and he is with me in a way that the worst of the trouble, he says, I'll take that. Now you learn and you grow, but what you cannot do, I will suffer for on your behalf. David cried, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning. And Jesus' answer is this, I am right here, and I am taking the worst of the suffering for you. And he has not left us, nor forsaken us. That question that comes up in Genesis, how can a holy God have fellowship 
have union with a sinful person? How can holiness and unrighteousness be brought together? And that's the question that comes up because when God forms that covenant with Abraham, how can this holy God form a covenant, an everlasting covenant with a sinful man? And the answer is that when God entered into that covenant of steadfast love, the same steadfast love that he shows to Joseph, he will not abandon those to whom he has committed himself to in covenant love, even if that means dying for the sinner. Where is God in your suffering? He is there with you to deliver you from the depth of your suffering. He will never desert you. We celebrate communion today. And in communion, that is what we have a picture of. All of you, one day, will lie in the grave. And when that day comes, God will not leave you. And there's an assurance that we picture at the communion table that we partake in him, that each one of us shares in Jesus Christ and the spirit that he sends, assuring that one day we will fully realize because God, unlike this world, will never desert us. Let's close in prayer. Father God, in chapter 39, we see the conclusion there of Joseph in the pit. And for many of your servants, that is where their earthly journey will end. But you are a God who raises out of the pit. But before you raise out of the pit, you also go down into the pit with us. This is how Joseph helps us to see our relationship with you. Because your son, Jesus Christ, did come down and will raise us up one day. Help us to live lives of confidence. Confidence in the covenant love that never forsakes. The covenant love already shown, already given, that can sustain us even as it sustained Joseph. Help us walk in faithfulness. Help us walk, help us walk in confidence. Help us live as testimonies to your covenant love. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen.